Well, this morning, we're going to be, obviously, as you can see, continuing on in our study of Mark, and we're at a really, really, really cool spot in the book, a really fascinating spot in the book, and I'm excited for it this morning. Some of the big questions we've been asking in the book of Mark, you, I hope you are able to recite them as if a, uh, a school student who's reciting vocabulary words, not with uh, dreadedness, but with just being able to have that, that repetition, that going through it so many times and time and time again. You know, we're not learning how to spell. We're learning some very important parts of the book of Mark and very important parts for our own lives with our three major questions in the book of Mark. First one, who is, who is, who is Jesus? I got you on that one. (laughs) Who is Jesus? It's a big, big question. We've said it so often, it can feel so repetitious, at least as we've been studying Mark recently, but it's such an important question, and whether you or I realize it, every single person in this room or in this world has answered that question. We all have an answer for that question. You could be someone who grew up in the church for decades and decades, and you have an answer to that question. You could be somebody who is on a a spiritual journey, learning more about spiritual things and been hearing about this teaching topic, and you have an answer to that question. You could be somebody who is, who is here, maybe was invited by a friend or listening online because of a family member, or you may not have chosen to be here, you may not care as much about this, but you still have an answer to this question. That answer may be, I don't care, but we all have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? And the answers can be as widespread as the people in this room. And what we're going to be going through today is we're going to be not just examining who is Jesus, but we're going to be looking at three different groups of people who each had three different answers to the question, who is Jesus? We're going to be looking at these three different groups of people who had three different answers to the same question, who is Jesus? And we're going to see how Jesus interacts with each and every one of these groups, with where they're at. What does he say to them? How does he comment with them? And our hope is, and my prayer is, that as we go through this, we'll be able to, all of us, align our answer just a little bit better on this track, on who is Jesus. And so as we're looking into these answers, into these other people from this story, from this account, I want you to answer this question in your head. Who is Jesus? I'm cautious answering that, because, or asking that. I don't want this to be an entirely subjective, Jesus could be anything that I want him to be, but I think that we all have to have a starting place. Am I right? So as we're going through this passage, ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? And then ask a follow-up question, how does that answer make a difference in my life? Who is Jesus, and how does my answer to that make a difference in my life? And then let's bring that answer to the scriptures and to other people's answers and better align with, I think, what the answer should be to the question, who is Jesus? We're going to figure that out. We're going to go through these different accounts, and we're going to do that in the book of Mark, chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 11 through 26. That is Mark, chapter 8. 11 through 26. Mark 8, 11 through 26. I'm going to read the passage to you in its entirety. I think you'll be able to notice the three different sections as we read through it if your Bible doesn't already highlight them. We're going to read through these three sections. Then we're going to go before the Lord in prayer. And then we're going to see what his word has for us today. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 26, says this. The Pharisees 
came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. With God's word before us, let's go to prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we we come together today, gathered, um, maybe for a multitude of reasons, but Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we have the ability to gather um, in your name. I thank you, Lord, that we have a space to gather in. I thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you are at work in these people, in this group of people, this local body, this local church. God, I'm thankful that you are not done working on us ever at any point in time. I thank you, Lord, that we are a different person now than we were before. And I thank you, Lord, that we will be a different person in the future than we are now. And Lord, help us to make sure and to to trust in you and to be faithful to what you are showing us so that as we turn into these new people, we will come closer to the image that you wish us to live. We'll be coming closer to the person that you designed us to be, not the person that we may selfishly or pridefully think we should be. Lord, every person in this room has has ideas of what faith is and how to believe and what to believe in. We all may come from different experiences in life, different places, different struggles, different battles. Lord, I pray that you would bring all of us with all of our expectations, with all of our places, with all of our experiences, bring all of us to your word to show us what you would have us believe in. Or better yet, who you would have us believe in. Lord, I pray that you would be with me this morning. I pray that you would use the words that I say. Your Holy Spirit would use the words that I say to encourage us and convict us where you know we need encouraging and convicting. And Lord, might we even in this time, even right now, lift our voices up to you in in thought or in word and say, God, change me. Lord, open my heart, soften my heart to be changed, to be challenged, to be comforted by your word, by your truth, by the working of your spirit. Lord, I'm thankful that you are here with us today. We are not here alone. This is not just a group of people meeting in a room on a Sunday morning for a pick-me-up. This is a group of people 
and those who have believed in you, whom you've called the church, who gather as a testimony to the work that you've done in our lives. And Lord, we, we sing with the rest of your church who is gathering all over the world on this Sunday as a testimony to what you have done in our lives. Be with us this morning, Lord. Thank you for all you do for us. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So to bring us up to speed as to where we are in this book, we just got done. John Paternoster this last Sunday did an incredible job bringing us through the feeding of the four the feeding of the 4,000 peoples. This would have been a group of Jews and Gentiles together in a Gentile region. And Jesus not only healed people, but he specifically mentioned, I have compassion upon these people. This Jesus, as we've been going through and seeing his actions, seeing his words, one of the last things we learned is that this Jesus has compassion on the peoples that he is around. He, he brought these peoples into the wilderness for sort of a weekend Bible study conference sort of thing in the wilderness area and decided he would not send them home famished. But he said, I have compassion upon this crowd. And he was able to take seven pieces of bread and after blessing them, giving thanks and breaking them, he was able to multiply the bread to feed upwards of 4,000 people. This is the second miracle that involved feeding thousands of people with a few pieces of bread. Not all the gospel accounts mention the feeding of the 4,000, but Mark does specifically it's worth noting at that point. And so this is where we came from. And it, the previous passage says that Jesus goes to a place called, in the region of something called the Dalmanutha. We don't know what that is. We really don't. There's not a record of what that place is. But we know it's on the Sea of Galilee. That's our sort of recognition, our little spot that we know. It's somewhere on there. More than likely, it was a place on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been a place in um, where there were more ethnic Jews living at. And why do we think that? Because at the beginning of this passage, after he goes to Dalmanutha, we find the Pharisees. Now, we haven't seen the Pharisees for a little bit here. Jesus took a bit of a missions trip out into Gentile-speaking places. He went to Tyre, he went to Sidon, he went to the Decapolis, and then he went off on this weekend Bible study conference with probably a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. So he's been away from Jewish, the Jewish land, the Jewish setting for a little bit here. And it's interesting that he goes out and he goes to all these places and he ministers and he does miracles and he, he teaches and he shows compassion and he has all these different great things going on here in a different setting. And then when he comes back over to the region of the Jews, he is immediately confronted. Like he barely gets a chance to get out of the boat. At least that's the way that Mark writes it. We don't know how long he was there before the Pharisees came, but we know that he, he went over to Dalmanutha, and then it immediately says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. It not only says that, it says that they sought from him, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven so that they could put him to the test. These Pharisees have had a wide variety of interactions with Jesus. Now, there isn't just one small group of like a few, maybe five or six people Pharisees. This is a wider spread group of people. More than likely, different Pharisees went to Jesus at different times. And these Pharisees, they came to him, and we can already tell, based on what Mark tells us, that they are not coming in a good spirit. Nothing about what they say comes, tells me that they're coming with an open mind. Nothing tells me they're coming just to have a simple conversation. Something tells me that there is something that they are desiring to do with Jesus as soon as they come to him. They have an agenda. I almost, again, I almost get this picture of him getting off of the boat and walking into the nearby town, and the local Pharisees are there. They see him, and they go, he's the one we've been looking for. We haven't seen him for a little bit. We don't know where he's been. He went to the Gentile. Why, why would he go over there? I don't know, but we're going to go, and we're going to talk to him. We're going to test him. We're going to ask him to give us a sign from heaven. 
is what it says. They were seeking a sign from heaven in order to test him. Now, here's where we get a little bit interesting. For those of us, just a brief reminder, the Pharisees were people that were incredibly studious. They were ones that read their Old Testament left and right. They knew the law. Many of them had to have the book of the law, the law of Moses, memorized. We at Gather and Grow, we go a few verses a week and we learn different verses that we memorize. And maybe some of us remember Tuawana's where you're memorizing different things day by day. These guys, when they were children, had to memorize the law. Memorize it. How many of us could say we have the book of Deuteronomy memorized? I don't think any of us. And what they were doing is it's really multifaceted. I think part of what they're doing, and this might be a little bit weird, a part of what they're doing is they're going to Jesus to try to follow the law of Moses by asking him to give them a sign. You see, the law of Moses actually gives you a detailed instruction of what to do if a prophet is in front of you. If you get somebody who says, I've received a vision from God, or if somebody speaks on the authority of God, The book of the law of Moses specifically tells you what you're supposed to do in order to determine if that prophecy is true, if what they're saying actually comes from the word of God. That is found in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. If you want to turn there for some extra credit, go right ahead. I'm not going to read it to you, but it gives you a bit of a detailed instruction of what to do to be able to tell If somebody claims to be a prophet, if somebody claims to be giving the word of God, how to tell if they're actually telling the truth. And the short of it is, they give a truth, and you figure and you wait and see if it's real or not. And if it's real, then that means they were probably from God. If it's not real, then it says have nothing to do with them. Some places, I think there's other places that say you actually need to kill them, per the Old Testament Mosaic law. The law was very cautious of anybody who came and said, God is speaking and says this to me, and I want to tell it to you. The law of Moses is very cautious of that. I think we should be cautious too, in a degree. So there's a part of that, that I look at the Pharisees coming and saying, we want to get a sign from me. We want to hear what you have to say. Show it. Tell us something that we can see happen to know that you are from God. Now, that is thinking of them very optimistically. I'm an optimist. I'm a glass-half-full kind of person. And so I hear that, and I go, okay, they're not entirely doing everything wrong. You know, that's not bad necessarily. But look at, again, what that is characterized by. The Pharisees, it says, did not come openly with asking an open question, with you know, the ability to have their mind changed with their heart softened. They didn't come in ready to have a, a simple conversation. They came in with an agenda. They came in to argue with Jesus, to test Jesus. They came in with a negative place from the get-go. And what it is, is what the, 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 the worst part about it is they're coming in with a negative place. They're having a negative heart place trying to follow and trying to use the Bible to get what they want. Do you see that? They may have the text right, but their heart is far from right. Isn't that fascinating? How many times have we done that before? Where it's like, well, the Bible tells me to do this. I've got to give. I've got to love. I've got to forgive. But I'm not. My heart isn't there. How often do we do that? So they come, ask him a biblical question with a sinful heart place. What could go wrong? I love Jesus' response in this. This is hilarious to me. This may be me looking too much into the humanity of Jesus, but I, 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 as I'm reading him and as I'm thinking of it, he sounds really annoyed. This is one of the only times that it says that when Jesus heard something, it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. 
Have you ever sighed deeply in your spirit because of something somebody said around you? That's a very unique word. Nowhere else in the Greek Bible is that word found. That's a unique one just for that place. it, It has this connotation of just somebody who's just done with it. <laughs> just done with it. Where somebody comes up and brings you something and you just go, come on. Maybe parents have a good idea of that sighing deeply. Maybe spouses have a good idea of that sighing deeply. Just do the dishes. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, maybe. I won't fill in those questions for you, but Jesus is just, he's, it almost sounds like Jesus is just at a loss for words. Because the thing about the Pharisees is they have seen signs from God. They have seen signs in Jesus' ministry already. He's given them miracles. He's shown them miracles. The man who was let down through the roof of a building, they tore the roof off and the buddies let down the paralyzed man. He went and he, he healed him and he forgave their sins and they, they saw that in front of them. Later on, the Pharisees more than likely planted a man with, with a withered, decrepit hand in a synagogue where Jesus was to, to see what he would do. And Jesus, not trying to hide the fact, showed everyone in that synagogue that he healed the man's deformed and withered hand. If the Pharisees are looking for a sign, they've kind of already gotten a few, and that's just in Mark. There's others in Matthew and in Luke and in, in John and whatever, but that's just in Mark. They've seen a sign. So what are they looking for here? Remember, it's a sign from heaven that they're looking for. Now that phrase is really interesting. And that phrase, if you compare it to other different accounts, some of them in the Bible, some of them outside of the Bible, that phrase has what is called, and this is something I gathered from, from a commentary that I read over this last week, that phrase has a, an, an apocalyptic leaning. What do I mean by that? An apocalyptic leaning. I'm not meaning zombie apocalypse. I'm not meaning a viral apocalypse. I'm meaning a New Testament apocalypse. The New Testament word, the Greek word for apocalypse, apocalypsis, means revelation. That's why the old, many old-time Bibles will call the book of Revelation the apocalypse of John instead of the revelation of John. It's the same word. They were asking for a revelation, an apocalyptic sign from Jesus. They were looking for him, and they were, comp- they were comparing what he's doing to their own idea of who the Messiah should be. Do you get that? They're comparing Jesus, and they're looking for a sign to, that will be able to tell them from their own understanding that this is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. Now, on one hand, this is the Messiah they're waiting for, at least as the scriptures tell, but not in the way they were looking for him, right? The Jews at the time were not looking for a humble Messiah. The Jews at the time were not looking for a Messiah that said, if you are hit on your right cheek, give them also your left. They weren't looking for a Messiah that said, I'm here to forgive. They were looking for a Messiah to conquer. They were looking for a Messiah to save them from their enemy. They're, they're not, not, not anything in their spirit, not anything in their sin. No, nothing like that. They're looking for a Messiah to save them from their physical enemies, their oppressors. At this context, it is the Roman Empire. So if we look at what the Pharisees are asking, they're asking a lot from Jesus here. They're saying, Jesus, in order for you to be this Messiah that we think you are, you need to show me right now that you are here to deliver us from our oppressors. Give me a sign from heaven. Open the heavens and bring down your army and do your thing like we think, like we have determined that you will do. They're putting Jesus in a very specific box. Do you get that? They're saying, Jesus, reveal yourself. Not like the ways you've already revealed yourself. Reveal yourself the way I want you to reveal yourself. Do you catch what he's doing, they're doing here? 
On the one hand, they're looking for very factual evidence in front of them of who this Jesus is. On the other hand, they're asking Jesus to roll back the heavens, to open up the clouds so they can look up and see on the throne is not who God may be that they don't understand, but who God should be according to who they think he should be. That's a dangerous request to make to God. It's not just cautious. It's dangerous for me to try to figure out in my own mind who is God and for me to go, God needs to be this. And Jesus, you claim to be God. You better be this. It's either this or I have nothing to do with you. It's a God based on personal evidence that comes from a personal idea of who God should be versus allowing God to reveal himself as he is. They don't want a God that's different than what they think he should be. How often could we relate? How often do we have a misguided view of God? How often? So we get this request from them. We get this Jesus sighing deeply and just frustrated with them. Jesus responds, Why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And to add the little comedic cherry on top, he doesn't say anything more to them. He just says he gets in his boat and he leaves. At our preaching team meeting, it was, I think, Brent Nesseth, he was talking, and he was kind of imagining Jesus saying, you know, Jesus says, no sign will be given to you guys. Come on, disciples, we're out of here. I ain't even dealing with them. And they just get up, and they hold him the hand, and they go. They're not even putting up with it anymore. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's I, I don't know exactly how that went, obviously, but that's the image I get where they're just like, I'm not even going to talk to you. I'm just going to get away from here. Now, we do have to ask a question about who is this generation? That's a very interesting word, and I'm not going to be able to break it all down this morning. But what I want to say is that we're entering a unique part of Mark where Jesus is going to start mentioning this generation a whole lot. He's going to start mentioning this generation, this generation. You know, cursed is this generation. What is this foolish generation? He's going to be mentioning that a lot. And there's a lot of different big Bible theology questions that have to do with who is this generation? You know, who is this generation that he's talking about that will not be given a sign? It's hard to answer. People have kind of argued over it for a few thousand years now. And I don't know if we'll figure it out on Sunday mornings here, but we'll at least definitely try. For now, I think it's fair to say that at least Jesus is talking about these Pharisees in front of him. And I think you could make an extension to suggest that perhaps he's not just talking about these Pharisees and talking about this sign they're looking for, but they're not going to receive this, this sign that they have an idea that they should receive, both to the Pharisees and to these peoples that were living at this time, an actual generation of people. You know, they're not going to get this God coming out of heaven with a white horse sort of imagery. But again, we're going to see it more and more and more about this generation. The Pharisees had, to a degree, had some faith in God. I don't think they had the right faith. I think they had a faith that was based on their own expectations of him. They weren't having faith in him. They were having faith in what they thought he should be. And that if he didn't conform, they had to go elsewhere. Because this couldn't possibly be God if he didn't match up what I thought he should match up with. They had a specific expectation, and God did not fit their expectation. Our first main point, our first spot of faith, is that God does not need to fit our expectations to be God. You and I have so many expectations of God. We have so many expectations of each other, right? It's just how humans are wired. And some of those expectations may be fair. God's all-knowing. God's all-loving. You know, God is everywhere, all at once. There's parts of the Bible that call him gracious, loving, merciful. 
just, righteous, these sorts of things. There's these expectations that we can look at in the scriptures by what the Bible tells us and say, that means that he is this. This is a fair expectation to have of God because it's based on what the scriptures tell us. I think where we extend past that is where we begin to get a little cautious, where we begin to have expectations of God that may or may not be biblical. God, work in this situation the way I want you to. God, heal this person the way I want you to. God, give me these resources that I need to feel safe. God, lead this person to yourself. These are all expectations we have of God. These are all requests we make of God, and those requests aren't bad in and of themselves, but they are bad when they are the the requirement for God to still be good, for God to still be God. God, if you don't do this, then are you even real? This is a cautious and a sensitive place to be because I look around in this room, and I know that there's some prayers we've given that have not been answered the way we wanted. There's requests and expectations we had of God that didn't match up with what actually ends up happening. That's a very sad place to be in many places. That's a big struggle that we can have. And at the end of the day, who does God promise us that he is? How, what do we know that God will do? We know it by what his scriptures tell us. I think another thing we have to be cautious of, and I'm just going to open the jar and just kind of close it really quickly here. I'm just going to open it and close it, okay? And we'll just leave it. The Pharisees were not looking for a humble God to save them from their sins. They were looking for a political conqueror to deliver them from their enemies. What are we looking for from God? Which one's better? Especially considering this coming November. (laughs) Moving on. We see here an example of faith that's designed by me getting my own expectations. We come next to another example of faith that comes from verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read these to you. It says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, told them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus, after being completely done with these Pharisee people, he says, I can't, I, you don't even get it. I'm done with you. I'm going to go with my disciples and we're going to come out on the boat and we're going to sail across the Sea of Galilee again. And as they go out, he hears another issue. The disciples talking about they only have one piece of bread. Now, it's really funny here because it almost sounds like Jesus, has, as they mentioned that, he kind of has a little teaching points, and he's like, beware of this. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But then the disciples continue to still struggle with something. It's like he gave them the answer. They still are like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, I know, but still, where are we, we going to get some more food? 
It doesn't say he sighed deeply in his spirit, but if you were Jesus in this moment and you just had to deal with what the Pharisees said, and now you're dealing with another faith issue, not from your enemies, but from your friends, and not just your friends, the ones that you've been living with and that you've been teaching for the last few years, wouldn't you be a little disappointed too? We get a really funny burst of, I don't even know if it's frustration. I don't know what you call him kind of coming out with all these different phrases. Are you, do you not understand yet? Are your hearts hardened? Can, are your eyes blind? Can you not hear? We get a bit of a Jesus who's a little, he seems a little perturbed, right? Obviously not uncontrollably, obviously not sinfully. But he seems a little bit on edge, maybe a better way to say that. I don't know. So they get on the boat, and I, I, I noticed this when I, was, when I was reading. This is the third time that Jesus and his disciples have been on this boat, at least according to how Mark writes it. I'm sure there's other points they were on the boat. But there's three different, up to this point, boat episodes that have happened in the book of Mark. The first episode was the calming of the storm, right? The, the boat's about to capsize. Jesus is trying to take a nap in the back, and the disciples are all thinking they're going to die from this storm, and Jesus, they wake Jesus up. They say, are you not concerned that we're about to die? And he responds with a simple peace. Be still, and the sea is settled. And he says, why do you lack faith? The second episode, they're out on the boat, The wind is blowing in the wrong direction. They're battling against the wind, and they're rowing. And Jesus let them go ahead, and then he goes and he walks on the water. And they see him, thinking he's a ghost, begin to be afraid. And he says, fear not, it is I. The third episode is another faith issue. Why is that? Why is it on the boats that these disciples seem to struggle to trust and have faith in God? Pastor John and I were running to get lunch one of these last, last few days. Over the, I think it was on Thursday is what it was. We were driving, and we talk every now and then throughout the week, you know. We try to keep up with each other. And we were driving, and I, uh, we were talking about this, and I think he made a really good point. I'm giving this one to John here. Um, but he was, like, he was saying, he's like, you know, it's, It's interesting since a lot of these disciples were fishermen. They had a lot of experience on the boat. It was a place they were very comfortable with, very used to. And when we get comfortable in a spot, when we get get, get used to, aware, prepared in a spot, it's in those moments that we can kind of start to rely on ourselves and on our own experience and less on God or even on other people. We begin to say, I got this. I know how this works. This is my sort of thing. I, I've done this a billion times. Don't worry. I got it right here. We're fine. And it was just, it was an inch. I don't, there's nothing in the Bible that says it, right? I'm not going to say that's biblical in any way, but I am going to say it's, it's interesting. And I think you and I can, can, can recognize that experience we have where it's when many times when we're most comfortable in ourselves, we have the least faith in others. Isn't that true? So they're on the boat. They're talking about how they only got a piece of bread. Must have been one of the leftovers or something, maybe growing stale by this point. Who knows? And Jesus uses this, and he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is a, is a, it's a baking tool. Many of you bakers out there know this. I have, I bake a little bit, but I do not delve in bread. I'm scared of baking bread. It's just, some of you may be good at baking bread. I'm scared of baking it. I like bake other things, but bread is just, I'm not that good at bread. So, but it's, it's this, it's, um, they have, they have this leaven, and this leaven is an Old Testament uh, image, Leaven is an Old Testament image, and it even pops up in the New Testament of the ways that just a little bit of leaven can cause a whole lump of dough to rise. So also can just a little bit of impurity, just a little sin, a little struggle, a little thing that I just kind of try to skip over and just forget that it's even there, that little bit can contaminate the entire soul or the entire body. Just a little bit. Not the big crazy things, of course, but the little bitty things can contaminate the soul 
And the little bitty things can contaminate the body, both as individuals and as a group, right? He gives them this warning. Watch out for the little bit of the, the watch out for the, the sin of the Pharisees and the sin of Herod. Very two opposite extremes. Herod, they were completely, we, we talked about John the Baptist and that whole episode and the Herodian family tree and all that sort of stuff. Don't want to go back there. Let's just say pretty messed up stuff. Pagans, Gentiles, far from God, you know, don't even want to look at Jesus, of, of Yahweh in the first place. Pharisees, exact opposite side. Beware of these two places. Beware of putting your own rules above God's rules. And beware of having no rules at all. Be careful here. The disciples sit there, they're talking. Oh, we don't have bread. Jesus says this. Okay, thanks, Jesus. Where are we going to find this bread? Again, Jesus seems to have a little bit of a frustrating moment here. Verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You don't get it yet. These disciples have seen two very clear miracles from God. Very clear miracles. And yet they're still struggling over the same issue. The same thing. It's not like it's water. It's bread. It's not like it's something different. It's the exact same thing. Jesus quotes before what as we read it, the ears to not hear and the eyes do not see and your hearts are hardened. This is a, connect, a, a sort of combo of a lot of different Old Testament passages and ideas here. Many, mainly, this in some ways comes back to when Jesus taught on the parables. Does that language sound very familiar when we went over the parables a little bit there? It said, well, did Isaiah prophesy you about how your hearts are hardened, how your eyes do not see, how your ears do not hear? Isaiah talked about it a little bit. There's other Old Testament passages. I won't read any of these, but we'll jump into them a little bit. Jeremiah 5, 21, Ezekiel 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2. Different ways, different verses that talk about either ears not hearing, eyes not seeing, hearts being hardened against what God wants them to know and to do. We're talking about a specific spot where somebody, at least for these disciples, are aware of Jesus. They've seen his miracles. They've seen what he does, but they don't understand it yet. In some ways, they're very familiar with Jesus. They've been his teacher. They know what he like, how he likes his breakfast cooked. They know this guy, but they just don't get it yet. They're familiar. They're familiar with Jesus, but they still don't understand. Time spent with someone does not mean that you know them. This is a very serious point to consider. Time spent with someone does not mean that you know them. I have a really good friend from college. He was actually the best man at my wedding. His name is Luke. Really great guy. He's a Kentucky guy. He lives in Chicago right now. He's going to Moody Theological Seminary for counseling degree. Really, really sharp guy. Married, you know, all sorts of stuff. Super cool. Really love him a lot. Really good friend of mine. I knew, I've known him at this point for, for several years now. For several years. It's getting close to eight years at this point. Okay, and I, I, we sat together, we struggled through college assignments, and we struggled through Old Testament reports and all sorts of different things, and we argued with each other, and we played board games with each other, and we watched the Lord of the Rings extended edition trilogy together every single year. It was a lot. We watched all these sorts of things, and we hung out together, and I thought I knew, I knew him well enough that I said, I want you to be the best man at my wedding. 
He said, yes, and he was. Well, ever since my wedding, him and I hadn't been able to stay in contact that much. He's been at school. I've been here. Recently, he reached out to me and said, hey, we should call a little bit more. And so we've been calling on a weekly basis to catch up with each other. And as we've been talking, I've been talking with him a little bit. Something else you need to know about me for this to make sense is I may not look like it, but over the years, I've really enjoyed participating in different forms of like martial arts training. In high school, I was in wrestling. It's a form of martial arts in college. I did a little bit of boxing. I did a little bit of, I learned a little bit of what's called Muay Thai, which is a form of Asian kickboxing. I learned a little bit of something called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is different than regular Jiu-Jitsu. It's a whole thing, right? You're looking, you're like, this, no, that's not true. It is true, I promise you, on the Lord, it's true, okay? So I've, but I've grown up around that. My dad was really into it even, so we talk about it a lot. I know a lot about it, and I enjoy it. Even right now, I have a punching bag at home, and I kick it a lot. It's very fun. I exercise on it, because he knows, right? And so I know a lot about martial arts, and I enjoy it. It's fun. It's a pastime of mine. It's a hobby that I like to watch. And we were talking about just different things we did growing up. And my friend, out of the blue, he's, um, I think we were talking about, I was exercising for Muay Thai recently or something like that. And out of the blue, my friend's like, oh, is that kind of like judo? I got a black belt in judo when I was a kid. Now, for those of you that don't know, judo, judo is another form of martial arts where you flip and you like slam people onto the ground. Very intense. I didn't know my best friend enjoyed stuff that I enjoyed. I knew some of it. I knew the nerdy stuff, like board games and Star Wars, but I didn't know that he enjoyed playing sports that I played. And I've known him for eight years. And I, told, I was like, what? what? Who are you? <laughs> and if you think I don't look like I could be someone that practices these, he doesn't look like that either. We both would openly say this about the other. Just because you're with somebody doesn't mean you know them. Just because you're with somebody, just because you spend time around somebody doesn't mean you know them. Case in point, look around you right now. Stop looking at me. Look around you right now. Actually, none of you looked around. Look around you. There's a lot of people here you may know. There's a lot of people here you don't know. But you're here every Sunday, or most Sundays. I don't know. That was not a judgment call, by the way. Just because you're around somebody doesn't mean you know them. The disciples were familiar with Jesus, but they did not understand Jesus. They didn't understand what he was trying to tell them. God does not need to be understood to be God. God will always be who he is, whether or not we fully understand him. Even if we have bad ideas of him, even if we may think we're so familiar with him, we still, that does not mean that he has changed. That doesn't mean that we know him as well as we should. We talk in youth group, and, and Larry and I will we'll talk about this at different points with our students. We'll say one of the, one of the worst things that I fear in youth group is a student who, who grew up in the church, has known God their whole life, and yet when they graduate... They never made their faith their own. They never committed themselves actually to Jesus. They never had faith and believed, and God never gave them that faith in the first place. But they thought their whole time, their whole life, that they knew Jesus. It's a very common youth group lesson. I extend that to the rest of the church because that doesn't stop at youth group. One of my concerns, and I think one of the, our concerns as pastors and deacons and leaders, is to be at church your whole life and still not know who Jesus actually is. To not allow the radical message of loving all despite what they do to you. The radical message of helping people with no opportunity or no expectation to get anything in return. The radical command to love everybody the way that God loves you. The other fear, and I think that this fear does go towards us who've been in the church for several years, who may have a couple of service projects under, under our belt, may have a few ministry projects under our belt. Well, I've done this. I've done that. Look at what, you know, I've done all these different Bible studies. I've done all these different things. I've come to church on a regular basis. I'm good enough. I'm good enough to go. Friend, I'm concerned. 
If your example of faith in Jesus is just that I've done all this stuff, if your example of saying I'm good for God, I'm good enough, is that I've done all this stuff, look at all that I've done, my friend, that's a bad heart place. You're familiar with Jesus, but do you actually know him? If that's all you're saying, I don't know if you do. Because the thing we need to know about Jesus is it doesn't matter what we've done, right? It doesn't matter how good or bad we've been. It's all for God, right? We've seen two different examples of faith. Faith based on evidence and faith that is based on familiarity but doesn't understand. We come to a third episode of faith. Verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? The blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Do you ever see those stories in the Bible that are just kind of put there that you gloss over quickly because you're like, eh, it's just, it's, it's that part of the Bible. I got to move on. I got other things to do. This is one of those sections for me. It's just another blind guy in the Bible that's getting healed by Jesus. And if we're not careful, I, that sounded very insensitive. I apologize if that sounded insensitive. That was my bad. But it's another person, another miracle that Jesus does. It's a miracle. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's great. But we've read this before, haven't we? There's a lot of stories like this, so it's very easy to gloss over it, especially to get into the next section. But we're not going to do that. Because I think Mark was very specific, and I think Mark was very intentional about why he put this here. We've seen, if we can, a progression of people through the past two stories coming a one step closer to the right idea. We get the Pharisees and they're far from it. We get the disciples and they're a little bit closer and we get to the blind man. And I think we've got ourselves something entirely different. They go to Bethsaida. A group of people come to Jesus. They say, lay your hands on this man. He's blind. Heal him. Jesus decides to take this man. He decides to walk him out of the village, take him to a secluded spot to speak with him personally. It says that he spit, and he put the spit into his eyes. He asked the man, what do you see? The man said, I see people, but they're like trees, and they're walking. There's like a progression of uh, another step in the progression of being able to see, right? Some people are like, well, Jesus had to work extra hard on this one to make it work, and he didn't fully make it work the first time. No, that's not how Jesus works. Jesus is all-powerful, at least as far as the scriptures tell us. Jesus goes at it again, lays his hands on him, then he can see everything clearly. This blind man was in a spot very different from that of the disciples and that of the Pharisees in that they both had something and they didn't even realize they had it. They, they had a step above this guy because they could actually see. They thought, well, I'm, I've got at least this part. This blind man seems to be in a place of desperation. I have a problem that cannot be healed. I have a problem that I cannot solve. I have a struggle that I cannot overcome. I need something better. I need something beyond myself for this to be fixed. His friends realized it. They brought him to Jesus. This blind man must have had no hope of receiving sight until he heard about Jesus, until he heard about the things that he'd done. And he said, this is, this is my shot. This is my last shot. If he can't help me, who can? This blind man comes to Jesus. Jesus accepts him, takes him to outskirts of the village progressively heals him. 
did something no one else could do. This blind man had to have faith in Jesus. Not a faith that was based on, you know, you do for me what I think you need to do. Not a faith based on familiarity. He didn't know Jesus. A faith based on needing him. A faith based on necessity. This has to be true or else I am in trouble. He had a faith in him that said, Jesus, or there is no hope. He was desperate for Jesus. And it was this faith that God can save. God saves those who do have faith in him. A faith, what is that faith? It's a faith that is in desperation. It's not in a faith out of prosperity. It's not in a faith out of I have all I need and I can just add this cherry on top. It is a faith that says I have nothing. I have nothing that I can do. I have nothing that I am. I have a problem that cannot be fixed no matter how hard I try. I need something greater. The blind man believed well. He believed in the one that could. Are you in a place of desperation for Jesus right now? Not I go and I'm, you know, I'm living this life. Not, oh, I, you know, I'm a part of it, and I've been a part of it, and I've had points in the past, but I don't know. Are you in a place right now where you're saying, if God isn't real, then what's the point? If God isn't real, there is nothing that can happen to help me. That is the faith that God gives us that helps us, the Bible says, to be born again, to realize that God is all we need, that God is all the only answer to our problems. Because God in the ministry of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who came and died on the cross and paid the penalty of sin and rose from the dead, conquering death. We're in the season of Lent. We're looking forward to the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection. We're in this season of expecting even in Lent right now, we're recognizing our space with, with the death of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. I don't know if anyone's practicing Lent actively. I don't know. But we're looking forward to Easter, which celebrates God who came to this earth and became the only solution to our problem, that being ourselves that being our sin, not just a little part of us, but all of us. At winter camp, the speaker said that we are marinated in sin. What a great illustration. There's not just a little part of us that's evil. We are marinated in it, like, like you would put some meat in a marinade and throw it in the fridge for a night. There's not a part of us that isn't contaminated. There's not a part of us that doesn't need help. We need Jesus. We are in a place of desperation for Jesus. We looked at all these different examples of faith in God, and some of them fell short. But I think at the end of the day, if we want to know what this true faith in God is, what it actually means to have faith according to what the Scriptures tell us, it is this, that faith in God is to know and need him for who he is and what he did. You could put the tail end of that according to the word of God. Like I said, we all have a different answer to the question, who is Jesus? We may have gotten to that answer in a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, if we are to look at what God has revealed to us, what God has told us about who he is, every other form of faith falls short. Faith in God is to know and need him for who he is and what he did, not for who I want him to be, not just to know him, but, you know, I don't, I, he's, he's a cherry on top. But to know and to need 
for who he is and what he did. That is faith. And it is that that the Bible says, by faith, you have been saved. Not as a result of your own works, so that no man may boast. God does not fit into our boxes we try to make for him. God is one that we could spend time around others who may believe in him, but still not know this true God. And at the end of the day, God is the one that we need. Do you think you need God? Is God a necessity for your life? Would your life right now look any different if God wasn't a part of it? That's a good question to ask us. If it doesn't, what needs to change? Faith in God is to know and need him for who he is and what he did. And this whole three sections leads us up to one of the first moments in the book of Mark that somebody is able, a human, is able to look at Jesus and say, you are the Messiah, the one who came to save. And we'll learn more about that message next Sunday.